Welcome to In Social Work, the podcast series of the University of Buffalo School of Social Work at www.insocialwork.org. We're glad you could join us today. The purpose of In Social Work is to engage practitioners and researchers in lifelong learning and to promote research to practice and practice to research. We educate, we connect, we care. We're In Social Work. Hello and welcome to In Social Work. This is Luann Back and I'll be your host for this episode. Recent technological advancements have had an enormous impact on how teenagers communicate and interact with one another when in dating relationships. While digital media has distinct benefits that can strengthen relationships, other facets of this form of communication can be potentially harmful and abusive. In this podcast, Dr. Lauren Reed highlights her research on digital dating abuse among adolescents and emphasizes the need to understand how social media is impacting the experience of dating violence within social relationships. She explains that while sexual expression among teenagers can be considered normal, the consequences associated with digital media can be far more reaching and consequential. Dr. Reed discusses the issue of gender in digital dating abuse and the differential impact of digital dating on girls and young women in relation to social pressure. Additionally, She describes how and why the use of participatory action research has led to effective preventive strategies and stresses the need to include digital media when assessing for dating violence. Dr. Lauren Reed is an assistant professor of social work at Arizona State University. Her research is focused on dating and sexual violence prevention among teens and young adults, youth participatory action research, and digital dating abuse. Dr. Reed has worked with adolescent and adult survivors of dating and domestic violence and has facilitated programs to empower youth to end relationship violence. She was interviewed in September 2017 by Carol Scott, PhD candidate here at the UB School of Social Work. Hello everyone and welcome. My name is Carol Scott. I'm a PhD candidate at the University at Buffalo School of Social Work. Today I'm joined with Dr. Lauren Reed. Dr. Reed is an assistant professor of School of Social Work at the Arizona State University. I would like to thank you very much for joining me today, Dr. Reed. It's my honor to be speaking with you. Thank you so much. I'm so glad to be here. Dr. Reed, I would like to begin with asking you to tell me about your research and practice interests. Sure, I would love to. So my research and practice has been focused on dating and sexual violence prevention for high school students and college students. And most recently, I've been working on what I call digital dating abuse, which is the use of digital media, which can be anything from the internet to social media to cell phones, sort of anything you do with digital media electronics, and the use of those electronics to monitor, control, threaten, harass, pressure, coerce a dating partner. I've been focusing on the use of digital media as a context and tool for dating and sexual violence. 
So tell me, why is that such an important issue for today's teens? Yes, so dating violence has been and continues to be a pressing social issue for today's teens. So we talk a lot about dating and sexual violence with teenagers and and know that about one in three teenagers will experience some form of dating violence. And that can be physical abuse, sexual abuse, or psychological abuse. And sort of our traditional views of dating violence have focused on these three forms, sort of psychological, physical, and sexual. But as social media have become more and more common among high school students, and we know that you know adolescents are on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram, all in Snapchat all of the time, we sort of need to look at those social media as, and how that might be impacting or affecting their experience of abuse. So if we're not talking about digital media as social workers, then we could be missing a large piece of the abuse that our teens might be experiencing. So you talk about digital dating abuse. Essentially, how is that defined or how do you look at it? And does it include both social media use and mobile phones or only one of the other? Mm-hmm. Great question. And there sort of isn't a, a, of course, agreed upon definition of digital dating abuse. And there are actually many terms that people use for the same thing, such as electronic aggression or cyber dating violence or other terms that have been used. But I always use digital dating abuse as a term. And I define it in my work as the use of digital media to monitor, control, threaten, harass, pressure, or coerce a current or former dating partner through the use of social media or mobile phones. And I got that definition from an organization out of San Francisco called Futures Without Violence. And they're an amazing organization that has sort of pioneered this work and started talking about it first. And so that's sort of the definition that I've used. So that's why I call it digital dating abuse. And how did you get interested in studying that? Yes, did when I was in my MSW program several years ago, I was doing work at a local domestic violence shelter in Southeast Michigan where I was living. And I was working both in crisis intervention with adult survivors, and I was running a support group for survivors who were in the shelter. And then I was also training volunteers. So I was interfacing with a lot of adults and a lot of teens who were interested in the topic of dating and domestic violence. And sort of my training and the literature at the time were telling me to talk about sort of these traditional forms of domestic violence, the physical, sexual, and psychological abuse. But when I was working with these clients and with the volunteers, they kept asking a million questions about digital media use. So they were talking about Twitter and they were talking about, you know, what do I do when my assailant is texting me a million times a day and wants to know where I am and what I'm doing or uses digital media to keep track of me or sends me threats you know, over digital media, what do I do? And I was really struck as as a practitioner that we didn't have any information for them. We didn't know what to tell them. We didn't know how big of an issue this was. And it wasn't part of our trainings. So I sort of thought it was a huge gap in our understanding. And if we're going to be working with teens and we need to sort of understand their experience, we need to be talking about digital media. So then in my research life, I, I started studying this topic to sort of help practitioners know what to do, how to assess for it, how to intervene, and then eventually how we can work to prevent these forms of abuse. Yes, because you're right. Almost every adolescent, teenager, young adult uses social media and they constantly are on their phone. So that's an interesting gap that you found that I absolutely think needs more research. Is it gendered? Do boys and girls experience digital dating abuse the same or are there differences? That's a great question. And that's been sort of my focus 
for the past couple of years because I think that the gender debate is an issue sort of in dating violence broadly when we're looking at dating violence and there's a lot of talk about you know can boys experience dating violence how does that look you know maybe this isn't a gendered issue maybe both boys and girls are experiencing dating violence the same you know how should we be intervening should we be talking about gender at all and it's been sort of this intense debate in the field and so I kind of sought to bring that debate to digital dating abuse and and use sort of the new technologies to take a new look at that debate and so I come from a perspective that this is a gendered issue and so in my work I have seen huge gender differences and I will say that everyone can experience dating violence and digital dating abuse no matter what your gender is and no matter what kind of relationship you're in and there definitely are boys and men who can be victims of these forms of abuse but in my work I've seen overwhelmingly that these things differentially impact girls and women. So even though boys might be experiencing abuse and we definitely need to be concerned about that, girls tend to bear the social pressure and the consequences, especially of digital dating abuse. So in my work, I've seen that when boys and girls experience the same kinds of digital dating abuse behaviors, girls are more likely to be upset, distressed, uncomfortable, embarrassed, feel scared, and they're more likely to have these sort of negative emotional responses. They're more upset by these things. And also there's a lot of indication that they sort of incur more social judgment. So especially around sexting, I do a lot of work around sexting and sort of the pressure to send sexual photos. And both boys and girls are sending sexual photos and videos to each other, but girls are much more likely to be pressured to send sexual photos by a partner. They're more likely to be asked by a partner to send sexual photos, and they're judged socially whether they send photos or not. So if they don't send sexual photos, they're sort of judged for being prude or and you know called all kinds of names. And then if they do send the photos, they're more likely to go viral and they're more likely to be called terrible names for sending the photos. So even though boys and girls are experiencing these behaviors at about equal rates, the consequences and the implications for girls seem to be much worse. Interesting. So this sounds to me similar to the stereotypical beliefs about gender that occurs offline. So is this similarly to what you are seeing online? Yes. I would say so, yes. And I think it's very similar, sort of the gender dynamics that happen. I think what happens online is sort of this element that you can distribute these things instantaneously to huge social networks. So, you know, the consequences that you're experiencing might be more far reaching because, you know, if you are pressured to send a sexual photo to your partner and you do it and then it gets sent, you know, on Twitter to hundreds of your friends, then those consequences can sometimes be more far reaching. But yes, it's basically the same dynamics that are happening offline, but just amplified a little bit. Interesting, which only adds to the necessity for this research, because if it's occurring naturally online as it was offline, but to a stronger degree, then that just calls for more research, which I appreciate you looking into this. So is digital dating abuse similar to cyberbullying or how are they the same or different? Yeah, this is something that I get asked a lot because I think cyberbullying has a lot of national attention and rightly so, you know, cyberbullying is a huge issue. And a lot of people say, why do we have to have a different topic called, you know, digital dating abuse. Why is it different? Isn't it just cyberbullying? 
And I would say that both of those things are very worthy of research and both of them are important and both of them are terrible issues. And I sort of draw from a lot of cyberbullying research and practice work in my work. But I would say that it is different because of the element of the romantic relationship. So when you're a teenager, romantic relationships are super important. You're really highlighted. Those are things that are that allow you to gain status. It sort of is everything you're seeing on the media is obsessed with romantic relationships and who's dating who and, and what sexual activity you might be engaging in. And it's sort of something that's really salient for teens. And so when someone within your relationship, someone that you love, someone that you care about, someone that you have a lot of your emotions wrapped up in is the one that's hurting you, I think that those consequences are different. And I think our interventions and our prevention looks different because we have to talk about relationships and what's healthy and what's not. And how do you have a romantic relationship as a teen? And what does that look like? And you're sort of competing with a lot of media messages and cultural messages about what relationships look like. So I do think that the romantic relationship context makes it unique. I couldn't agree more. And if I can go back to a piece I think that's important, in some of the research I've been reading that you've done, you make an interesting point that dating was used to be a private interaction between two people and now it's gone public, essentially because of the use of digital media. And I know that you brought up the point about sexting. Can you tell us more about that and why is, is sexting good or bad for teens and, and is it a big issue? Yeah, so sexting is something I get asked a lot about because you definitely see it in the media, right? And there have been some pretty terrible consequences from sexting going viral. You know, we've seen things in the military recently. And and so this is something that gets highlighted a lot. And I think, and I'm also trained, in addition to being a social worker, I'm trained as a developmental psychologist. So I think a lot about normative sexual development for adolescents and what that looks like and how is how does sexting fit into that is, is a confusing question. And I I think when when researchers and practitioners first started thinking about sexting, there was this moral panic around it. You know, this, oh my goodness, like these teenagers are sending these sexual photos of each other and do they don't know the consequences and what if they try to get a job in the future and these pictures surface and there was a lot of moral panic around how to get teenagers to stop sending sex messages and when I was working in high schools teachers would come to me all the time and say you know all my kids are sexting how can I make these girls stop sending these photos what can we do and I would look at them and I would say well yeah we can definitely talk about that but how do we also get the boys to stop distributing these photos around the school and that sort of stopped them in their tracks and they were like oh let's think about that because I do think as a developmental psychologist that sort of sexual expression and experimenting in these ways is pretty normal it's actually not that different than what teens have been doing always we just have the element of digital media that we didn't have before so I actually think that you know if these behaviors are welcomed and they're consensual and nobody's being coerced then I actually think they're pretty normal and not a huge cause for concern but there's two problems. One is the legal problem. So technically, if you're under the age of 18 and you're sending these photos, you can be charged with a felony for distribution of child pornography because you are distributing sexual material of someone who's under the age of 18. So that is an issue. And the legislation hasn't really caught up with how to deal with that yet because it's obviously different than your sort of classic child pornography case, but the law hasn't quite figured out 
how to handle that. And so you sort of see some really unfortunate situations where a girl will send a photo to a partner and her and the partner will both get punished equally and there's no sort of nuanced understanding about what's happening there. So there's legal issue, but then the issue that I'm more interested in is an issue of coercion. So what I see a lot of times is that these sexual photos are used as like a bargaining chip or sort of as a bribe. So girls will often get a ton of pressure to send these photos. And, you know, it's sort of seen as like a, a sign of intimacy. Like, you know, we're so close and we're so in love that I have a naked photo of you on my phone is sort of a sign of intimacy. And so girls may or may not want to send these photos, but whether or not they do, they definitely don't want them distributed all over the school. And I I've even seen cases where in, in some high school school districts, all the boys in a district will all send the naked photos that they have to one person. They'll have a Dropbox account online and only the boys in the school will have the password to it. And they sort of have a database of all these naked photos of girls in their school with their names and school listed on the photos. And so that's obviously an issue when you sort of take away someone's autonomy and someone's ability to choose how these photos are being used and distributed, and it's a form of sexual violence. And so I think that when there is this coercion or manipulation or deception involved, then it becomes an issue of concern. And within a relationship, it can be a form of dating violence. So I'm really interested in sort of what happens around that coercion. That's fascinating. So even sexting or the sending of the pictures and the coercion, that seems to be gendered. Yeah. So in my work, and I have a new paper I'm working on where we looked at rates of sexting. And rates of sexting for boys and girls in my work has been pretty close. You know, it's really high. It can be anywhere from 50 to 70 percent of high school students who are saying that they're sending sex messages, which is very high. So it seems if you just look at those frequency rates that both boys and girls are sexting at equal rates and you're like, oh, this isn't a gendered issue. But I asked about motivation for why they sent sexual photos and both boys and girls were most likely to say that they just sent these sex messages to be fun or flirtatious or to have fun. So most of the time they were saying this is not a big deal, but girls were twice as likely as boys to say, I received pressure to send these photos or my partner at me repeatedly until I gave in and then I sent them a photo. So about 40% of girls were experiencing some form of pressure to send these photos. So I do think that although both boys and girls are sexting, girls are more likely to receive pressure and coercion to do so. And they're judged more harshly in the social context. That's fascinating. Because of the pressure and the coercion that's occurring and how girls are feeling that, is this what is important for social workers? Like why, what can social workers who are listening to this podcast take away from this and do in their practice? Like what's the take home message for them? Sure. Yeah. So what I always tell social workers is to, first of all, to not give harmful messages. So to not tell girls like, oh, you need to just stop sending these sex messages. So to avoid sort of shaming what can be really normative sexual experimentation. And then I tell social workers to make sure that when you're assessing for dating violence, that you're asking about digital media. So you're not just asking, you know, have you ever been hit or have you ever been pushed or do they yell at you? You know, use words and use digital media in your assessments. Ask them about what happens on Twitter. Ask them about their digital boundaries and their relationships and do they have them? Or ask them if they ever feel uncomfortable about the number of messages that their partner sends them during the day or do they feel controlled by what they post or don't post on social media? So asking those questions, because if they don't ask those questions, a 
lot of teens don't know that these behaviors are part of abuse because we don't talk about them. But then the minute you start talking to them, they might say, oh yeah, that actually does make me feel really uncomfortable. Or, oh, I didn't know that I wasn't supposed to give my Twitter password to my partner. I thought that everybody did that. You know, So it's really important to ask about digital media use in relationships as part of assessing for dating violence and look for those signs. So that's definitely important. And I think when you do sort of encounter someone or a client who's experiencing dating violence, pay attention to those gender dynamics. You know, don't just assume that there's one person who's at fault and one person is experiencing consequences. Ask about the gender dynamics in that relationship, who makes the decisions, who's experiencing social consequences, and, and be a little slow to judge and be thinking about what possible gender dynamics might be at play. Assessment and the language that you use with clients, paying attention to digital media and paying attention to gender dynamics will be really, really helpful if you're working with teen clients around these issues. So when you say teen and when you look at your research, what are the age groups that you're looking at? Is it only like high school or do you look at college? What's your age group? Yeah, so I started this work looking at college students. So when I first started doing this work, I developed a measure of digital dating abuse for college students just because I had more access to college students since I was at a university and I wanted to sort of pilot this measure and figure out what was happening. And then once I sort of got more comfortable with how I was thinking about these things and measuring it, I went into high schools and started working with high school students. And I think that's sort of my primary interest just because I'm interested in prevention. So these things definitely happen in high school and college, but I'm interested in sort of intervening with high school students while they're having sort of their first romantic relationships and getting them to understand the role of digital boundaries in these relationships and helping them have healthy relationships both online and offline. So I'm really interested in prevention. Interesting. Can you tell us more about that work? If you're a social worker listening and you hear this kind of stuff, what kind of advice can you give in prevention? Because I know your research also looks at evaluation and intervention programs. So I was wondering if there's anything you can speak to. Definitely. So my prevention work, I, I sort of take an approach of a youth participatory action research approach. And so if anyone hasn't heard about that before, it's this idea that prevention work doesn't have to be top down. It doesn't have to be social workers or educators going into a community and saying, this is what I think we should do to end this problem and sort of running an implementation of of an intervention. Youth participatory action research says that youth are the experts about their own lives, right? And they know what issues are important in their own community. And they probably know things that could be done to fix it. And so we're sort of harnessing the autonomy that teenagers are searching for that they don't always have when they're teenagers. And we're sort of pointing them in a positive direction. So a lot of stuff that I would do is is I would, I co-facilitated a group of teen volunteers where you know they volunteered to be in this group once a week we met and we did trained them in sort of the basics of dating and violence and sexual violence and then they designed interventions and workshops and events and speakers that would go out and they would themselves go out to high schools and community centers and present to their peers on these issues So we didn't have to tell them that digital media was important because they already knew. So because this was already so much a part of their life, they automatically talked about digital media and issues of digital dating abuse because they were experiencing it. So I think doing youth-led and peer education programs is 
super important around these issues because you know I can only go in and talk to a class and and do so much they I, I might be much less likely to make an impact than if their own peers are talking to them about these issues and I think because social media is inherently social in order to, to interrupt some of these behaviors we need to make it not cool to do these things so if there are student leaders in your school who are going around and talking about these things or posting things online about digital dating abuse and, and all the problems with it, you might be like, oh, this isn't cool for me to be doing. Maybe I should stop doing it. And I think that having these youth-led efforts is probably the most effective way that we can prevent some of these behaviors. So that's the kind of work that, that I've done with teens. That's an interesting point because they are their own experts, right? Like they're the ones who use social media to the level, like they use it more than you or I would. And the language they use and the way that they speak to each other is important because we can go in as adults or as researchers and say, hey guys, this isn't cool. And they'll just be like, here's one more adult telling me what to do versus their own peers going in. This is what's happening to people who do this and we shouldn't do it to each other. I like that. Exactly, exactly. And I think, and I mean, and it's happened to me a million times where I go into high school classrooms and I start talking to them about these things and then I learn something new. You know, I wasn't a Twitter user until recently and I got a big education in Twitter doing this work because I was initially asking all about Facebook and asking them about their Facebook use and what they do on Facebook. And then I piloted some of this work with high school students and they looked at me like I was crazy. You know, they're like, no one uses Facebook anymore. Like you should be asking about Twitter and Snapchat. And I just had no idea. And these things change very quickly. So we sort of can't do this work without the engagement of teens. And I think engaging teens is a better long-term solution anyway. So, and I've, I've gained a lot of inspiration from working with teens and seeing some amazing advocacy from teen leaders. And, and they're sort of hungry to talk about these things and hungry to find solutions. And so I think it's our job to sort of give them a platform. Fascinating. I want to bring it up. I research social media use in young adults, and I'm fascinated by this idea of difference between platforms. So when you're speaking to them, what platforms do they experience digital dating abuse on and which ones don't they? Yeah, so I hear a ton about texting. So texting or iMessage. Um, so I hear the most common form of digital dating abuse is what I call digital monitoring and control. And that's using social media to sort of monitor the whereabouts and activities of your partner. So a huge thing I hear is, oh, my partner texts me 150 times a day and they want to know what I'm doing and where I am and who I'm doing it with and can they come over and, you know, just this very persistent monitoring. And a lot of people would come back at me and say, oh, like, that's not a big deal. Teens are texting each other all the time. And I would respond with, yeah, you're right. So, you know, if it's mutual and it's welcomed and both partners are texting each other 25 times an hour, then that's fine, you know, as long as it's consensual and, and it feels good to them. But it becomes a problem when one person is feeling uncomfortable or they're feeling controlled or sort of not safe with the amount of monitoring that they're getting from their partner or how jealous their partner is or how many messages they're getting at what times and what those messages say. So it's how the partners are feeling about that that I, that I think is important. So a lot about texting. And then in terms of other social media, Instagram, Twitter, Snapchat, 
are the big ones that I'm hearing about now. Though Snapchat gets a lot of bad rap for sexting. And I think it is a platform for that. But again, I'm only really concerned when there's coercion or manipulation involved. And a lot of stuff about Twitter and sort of conflict on Twitter. So, you know, a partner saying harassing or mean things on Twitter or, you know, couples getting into Twitter fights on Twitter where it's very public and everybody can see it or a lot of monitoring of like who you're following. So I would talk to some teenage girls who said that their boyfriend made them unfollow all the boys that they were following because, you know, following someone or liking a photo or retweeting something was seen as like almost sexual, like, oh, why are you liking their photo? Like, what are you doing? You know, a lot of monitoring of who they're talking to on social media. And I hear this from boys as well. It definitely goes both ways. And yeah, those are sort of the most common platforms that I hear about. So tell me, how do you measure it? What are the type of questions you're asking? Because as you're speaking, I'm thinking, fascinating. You're right. A lot of teenagers wouldn't think that it's weird for, you know, your partner to say you can't follow this person. But if it doing so against your own will or because you're being told to and you feel pressure, now it's a completely different thing. So how do you measure this? What are the type of questions you ask? And then maybe the listeners can think, oh, I need to ask this for my clients as well. Sure. Yeah. And this is sort of an ever evolving issue because it's hard to measure digital media use. So um, I sort of started modeling my survey questions. I developed a survey measure and I modeled it after sort of traditional measures of dating violence. So I would have questions that said, you know, has your dating partner ever done this or done this or done this? And there are questions like, has your partner ever looked at your digital information without your permission? Or have they ever pressured you for a sexual photo that you didn't want to send them? Or have they ever threatened you? physically using a form of social media. So I would sort of ask all of these questions that covered the range of of behaviors that I thought might be possible. And then I would ask them, has this ever happened to you? Or has this ever happened in your most current or most recent relationship? And that was sort of how I started. And that's just looking at frequency and prevalence, right? So has this ever happened to you? And maybe how often is it happening in your relationship? And then I sort of wanted to get more at the context and, and how this feels, because I think that just looking at the frequency is only telling us part of the story. Because again, going back to gender, it appears that boys and girls are experiencing this at equal rates. And so if you only ask about frequency, you're not getting the full story of the gender dynamics. So I would, in my more recent work, I also ask follow-up questions. So I would say, oh, you know, you've experienced this behavior and then you get follow-up questions that said, the last time this happened, how did it feel? Or how much did this upset you? And then I allow them to respond. And then I say, how did you respond to this? And I, I ask both about emotional responses. So how did it feel? So were you happy? Were you sad? Were you scared? Were you uncomfortable? Um, were you excited? You know, what are a range of possible emotional responses you could have had? And then I also ask about behavioral responses. So did you stop talking to them? Did you confront them about it? Did you block them on social media? Did you do nothing? Did you say nothing? You know, so I ask about both emotional and behavioral responses. And when you start to 
ask about motivations and, and responses, that's when you sort of see a lot of the gender dynamics appear. So I would encourage everyone who's doing this work to not only ask, has this happened to you and how often, because how often is an indication of, of perhaps how serious it is, but also ask about their motivations for engaging in these behaviors and their emotional and behavioral responses to these behaviors. And that will give you a fuller picture. Agreed, because I think in the follow-up questions where you're asking about the emotional behavior responses, that's when you really truly see the impact that it has on the individual. Right, right. Yeah, that's been my experience. This might not be part of your research, but so we know that social media use and cell phone use, like digital use, has some positive benefits. Are you noticing with respect to your research any positives that are coming out of this or can we use social media to turn it on its dime and help people instead of hurting people through it? Yes, and I realize that I talk, I spend a lot of time talking about the negatives of social media and digital media use and I always try to balance it because I, I don't think that it's all bad and there are definite positive aspects of digital media use use for relationships. And I've done some work where I've asked college students and high school students, you know, what are some of the positives you've experienced? And so I hear a lot of good things. So I hear a lot of like, um, I feel closer to my partner when I can text them during the day and we can talk or a lot of couples, especially in college that are long distance, they use FaceTime or they use, you know, different forms of digital media to stay in touch and to feel closer. I hear a lot about just being able to seek partners more easily because of digital media. So, you know, widening your dating pool is important. There is an element of added closeness and familiarity when you get to sort of communicate through multiple means throughout the day. So when it's welcomed and mutual, then it can be a really great thing in a relationship. And you can share, you know, you can share photos with each other, you can share what's happening in your day, and that all sort of develops intimacy. And I have seen a lot of, in terms of prevention and intervention, social media can be used as a tool to end these, these forms of abuse. And so I've seen a ton of online campaigns that have started, you know, hashtags about these issues, and even websites and tools that have been developed specifically for engaging teens on social media about these issues. So there's apps that have been developed and Futures Without Violence, that organization that I mentioned before that I've done some work with, they've actually just launched an app for teens that talks about a lot of these issues. So we're sort of using social media as intervention and they have a, a campaign called That's Not Cool and you can go to that'snotcool.com and you can see the ways that they're using social media to engage youth to prevent abuse. So I think that there is a lot of potential there and we can sort of harness some of that energy. I couldn't agree more because I sit in the camp of social media has both benefits and risks and I think that we can foster the benefits to help reduce the risks, right? Especially with your approach to intervention and prevention in a community like participatory action research way, I think we can absolutely use it there and say, hey guys, this isn't cool, but this is how we can use it to help not hurt each other, right? Exactly, exactly. And there has been instances of this. So I hear a lot about teens, a lot of the teens I work with use Tumblr. And Tumblr has sort of become this like social justice hub for teens to talk about social issues. And so there are models for this. And there are teens that are doing this work. It's just sort of making it more mainstream and giving them the tools to do it more and bringing some of those tools to things like Twitter and Snapchat, where traditionally they haven't been. So I, I think there is a ton of potential there. 
Perfect. So where do you see this going next for you, Dr. Reed? Yeah, so I'm working. I just moved to a new state. So I'm now in Arizona. I was doing this work in Michigan and in California. And so I'm in a new state, which is really exciting. And I'm hopefully trying to make some connections with the local high schools here in Phoenix and to sort of replicate some of the the youth participatory action work that I've done in other states. And so I'm really excited about that. And, you know, there's a different demographic in Arizona. I'm excited to look at these issues and how they might impact youth of different cultures. And so that will be a focus of mine here in Arizona. And I'm doing a lot of the papers that I'm writing right now focus on sexting and prevention and what we can do about it. So I'm, I'm really excited to start publishing some of my work on prevention, which I haven't had a chance to do yet. And then just sort of trying to engage the youth here in Arizona. I'm also doing some work with college students more, and I've partnered with Futures Without Violence, who I've mentioned a, a couple times, and we're doing a needs assessment of how colleges and universities are engaging college men in fraternities and in ROTC programs to be allies in preventing dating and sexual violence. So I'm really interested in, in sort of working with college men as well as allies and, and positively engaging men in, in this prevention work. So that's some of the, the new directions that I'm, that I'm currently taking. Right. If teens can go and tell each other, hey, guys, this isn't cool, I think men being allies is an interesting way because, like you said prior, what if we start teaching our men not to ask for these questions or not to force women to send pictures, right? Exactly. And that's the true prevention. That's the true prevention is, is for the stuff not to happen at all, <laughs> not just how girls respond to it. The piece is girls shouldn't have to have that in the first place, right? Like if they want to send them, like you said, there's positives. It can help grow a relationship. But if they're sending them because they're afraid if they don't, their boyfriend will break up with them, for example, that's not cool. Exactly. And I think it can help boys also. I think that starting these relationships in high school is really scary for both boys and girls and any kind of relationship that they're in. And I think that everyone is sort of looking for positive models and how this is supposed to look because everyone is sort of seeking intimacy. And so when I talk to college boys, you know, they also want good relationships and they also want to feel cared for. And they just might not know how to do that. And so they sort of fall back on these more harmful media messages or these toxic masculinity messages that they've been taught as sort of a roadmap for how to act, but I don't think that helps them either. So I'm interested in, in really trying to, trying to break the mold and find some other ways to communicate to teens about how to have healthy and fun relationships using social media. And I think that's brilliant because, right, it's a cycle because what if, for example, the, the men or the boys really don't want to do this, but they're feeling pressured to do it from their own friends because their friends are like, hey, my girl's doing this, your should too, right? So exactly. I think if we can start talking about these kind of things, maybe we'll hear more from the men and we can switch things up. Exactly. Yeah, I hope so. And I've worked with some really amazing teenage boys who have been advocates and worked in my programs and done some really cool prevention work. So I've been inspired by that, and I'd like to sort of do that more. Agreed. And if you don't mind, you mentioned culture and looking at different cultures in your new state, which congratulations on. Thank you. <laughs> Thank You're you. welcome. Have you done any work on the differences 
of digital dating abuse or sexting in cultures? And if so, what is it showing? Yeah, that's a good question. I think that's a really early question to ask. I think it's been done, there has been work in dating violence more broadly on different cultures. And I think there are some, there is some work on, you know, what might be the differences between like black teens and white teens, for example, or looking at teens in the Latino community. And we're sort of finding that teens who are minority ethnic racial minorities might be more at risk for these forms of abuse than others. And we don't exactly know why. And so that's been something I've been really interested in. And when I was in California, I was working with a lot of primarily Latino population. And so I was in high schools working with these teens and, and seeing face to face how we can sort of tailor some of our interventions towards different cultures and how things might appear or be talked about different in different cultures. And I think that work can be applied to digital dating abuse prevention as well, because I think that there might be differences in the ways that teens from different cultures use social media and the way that they talk about social media, and they might be using different platforms. And so I think that those are things that definitely should be looked at. And I don't think, to my knowledge, that that's been a focus of digital dating abuse work thus far. So I do have some data on digital dating abuse among Latino teens, and I'd love to sort of delve into some of that data and and start that work. Yeah, and I think that that will be a great gap to be filled because I think like we know that different cultures or different race or ethnicities use different platforms, right? So it'd be interesting to see how this all plays out in a digital dating abuse world. And I think that that's a huge gap to come, and, and I can't wait for that research to come out of yours. Yeah, thanks. Same, same here. <laughs> yeah. Like any other big major take home message that the listeners are listening to, we should hear if we haven't already. Well, I just, I guess I would just want to emphasize the sort of the power of the youth participatory approach and making sure that in all of this work, we're, we're making sure that it's relevant and important to the teens that we're working with. I think that's sort of my biggest message. And to notice that dating violence and sexual violence and digital dating abuse, these are all sort of overlapping issues. And so if a teen is experiencing digital dating abuse, they're also likely to be experiencing offline abuse. And so paying attention to how these digital behaviors are happening in a constellation of other potential victimization and making sure that we're looking at all forms of possible victimization when we're working with our clients. Because as we know, in research, you know, we tend to sort of silo things and talk about one thing at a time. But in, our, in the world of our clients, they're often dealing with many things simultaneously. And so making sure that we, we keep that in mind. Right. And then they say it's happening. Start asking follow-up questions about how they're responding and how they're feeling about it. Perfect. Well, that's all I have, unless you want to say anything else, Dr. Reed. I think that's all. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Dr. Lauren Reed's discussion on digital dating abuse and strategies for prevention. I'm Luann Back. Please join us again at In Social Work. Hi, I'm Nancy Smith, Professor and Dean of the University of Buffalo School of Social Work. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We look forward to your continued support of the series. For more information about who we are as a school, our history, our online and on-the-ground degree in continuing education programs, we invite you to visit our website at www.socialwork.buffalo.edu. And while you're there, check out our Technology and Social Work Resource Center. You'll find it under the Community Resources menu.